Well, <clears throat> there is a familiar scene that keeps popping up uh, around this time of year. Uh, you may have seen this scene uh, in your neighbor's lawn, maybe on your lawn. Uh, maybe you have seen this scene on, uh, on a billboard or maybe in a commercial. Maybe you've seen this scene uh, set up on a church lawn. Uh, maybe sometime this year or during this season, you're going to go and watch this scene played out live. You guessed it. It's the manger scene. We've, we've seen this scene several times now because it is uh, that time of year, and, and it's familiar to us. When, when we see it, we know what it is. Uh, most of us don't have to look at it and say, what, what it, what's going on? What? We know it because, again, there's, there's the stable, right? The this, this stable's there. Uh, there's, there's Mary and Joseph and, and, of course, baby Jesus right there and the shepherds and the animals, and, 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 it's, and it's familiar to us. We, we know it. We know what it is when we see it uh, and, and when we look at it. Now, um, every single one that I have seen, uh, and, and maybe you can identify with this, every single one that I've seen has a sense of um, calm, Right, it's 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 very serene. Um, you know, all the figures are smiling or or have this sense of peace and calm uh, over them. So as as you're looking at it, um, it it's very serene. Also, um, it's very clean. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, considering the situation. Considering that, uh, you know, Mary and Joseph have traveled for a very long way outdoors, uh, considering uh, that they have just had a baby in a barn, um, their clothes are very clean. So they're very serene, they're smiling, their clothes are very nice. Uh, you know, Joseph doesn't look worried at all in the scene, even though, uh, you know, the of course, intense set of circumstances he has just endured. Not to mention he was previously told, oh yeah, you're going to father the son of God. So, uh, you know, don't mess this one up. <laughs> so it's, it's a very strange scene when, when you look at it and realize that a lot of the pieces really aren't fitting together. You know, the, the stable is made out of wood, which isn't historically accurate. You know, they were hewn out of rock. Um, you know, everybody's clothes are clean. It's all serene. Even... Um, we just sang uh, away in a manger. Uh, it goes, the, the, the cattle are lowing, uh, the little baby uh, wakes, but no crying he makes or something like that. He, of course he was crying. He was a baby, you know? And so here, here's what I'm getting at. Sometimes we can get a scene or a picture in our mind um, that doesn't really coincide with reality. Because we've seen it time and time again, and, and it's been presented to us time and time again, and even though that's not the reality of it, that's not really how it went, that's kind of how we think that it, that it went. And so around this time of year, here at this time in particular, it's very easy to forget just how controversial Jesus was and is. 
So as, as you're looking at, I mean, just his birth alone, I mean, this, this was the immaculate conception. Do you think people had a difficult time believing that that was reality? Can you imagine how controversial that would have been? So even just in his birth, it was very controversial, not to mention what Jesus goes on to do and how he lives was incredibly controversial. As a matter of fact, he is so controversial that at the end of our text today, these, th- these two groups of people, the Pharisees and the Herodians, get together to uh, essentially plot his death. That's how controversial Jesus is. And so as we've been traveling through the book of Mark, and chapter 2 in particular, Mark has put on display five particular scenes where Jesus stirs up controversy. He, he has put on display uh, from the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, all the way through chapter 3, uh, verse 6, five scenes, five uh, uh, pictures where Jesus is interacting with religious people, uh, where he's going around, he's saying things, he's doing things, he's teaching, and it's stirring up trouble. It's stirring up controversy. I mean, just think about it. Let's, let's just recap what we've seen. Well, we opened up chapter two and we saw that they lowered a guy through the roof and Jesus said to him, your sins are forgiven. Now, this was very controversial because only God could forgive sins because ultimately all sin is against God and so God's the only one who can forgive sins. So for Jesus himself to say, uh, your sins are forgiven was Jesus saying, making a proclamation that he himself was God. This was obviously very controversial. The next scene that we saw, Jesus goes and he talks to a tax collector, like the lowest of the low, worst of the worst. I mean, this was the scum of the earth. Tax collectors were hated. They were traitors to their own country and people. No one liked them, but Jesus goes and he calls this guy to be a part of his team, to be an apostle, to be a disciple, and then he goes to his house and he eats with him. I mean, the religious people are just losing their minds at this point. It's stirring up all kinds of controversy that how could uh, this guy who says he's holy, says he's from God, associate with people who are so evil, so wicked, uh, and so terrible. I mean, just controversy surrounding him. The next scene that we saw, and this is what we saw last week, is that Jesus breaks all of the religious rules when it comes to fasting. They fasted twice a week, and if you wanted to be holy and righteous and awesome, and, and you wanted everybody to think that, that you, know, you had everything together, you fasted twice a week because that's what people did. But they weren't fasting when they were hanging out with Jesus. They were feasting. They were doing just the opposite. And so, of course, people are standing on the outside just shaking their head, wondering who this guy thinks he is and what does he think he is doing. Very, very controversial. What we're going to see today is the next two scenes, and both of them have to deal with the Sabbath. Now, um, in one instance, they're breaking all the religious rules because supposedly they're harvesting on the Sabbath, right? Which you're not supposed to work. That's a big no-no. And then the next scene that we're going to see is also controversial because Jesus breaks the rules by healing on the Sabbath. So those are the two scenes that are going to unfold for us. These are the two scenes where Jesus continues in this series of five scenes to stir up controversy. Now, let's ask this question before we dive into our text today. What made Jesus so controversial? Why all of the quarreling? Why does he make people so mad everywhere he goes? I mean, can't these guys just take a chill pill? 
right? I mean, can't these guys just, you know, take a break, sit down, you know, have a glass of wine and cool out? Like, what is the deal with these guys? Why, why is there so much controversy everywhere? Well, here's the reason why Jesus was so incredibly controversial. Jesus is so incredibly controversial because Jesus insists on messing up everybody's plans. <laughs> this is why Jesus is so controversial. Everywhere he goes, he messes up people's plans. Now, um, some of you know this about me, some of you don't. I am not a, uh, you know, willy-nilly, uh, loosey-goosey, fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants type guy. I'm not that way, I'm not wired that way, I'm not built that way. I like to have a plan for my plan, for the backup plan if that plan falls through, okay? That's how I'm made up, that's how I'm wired. I like a plan, a system, I, I function well that way. And so when, when my plan gets messed up, I get really, really grumpy, right? Anybody else, right? You, you go into work, your boss has a project for you to do, and in your mind, you've already decided how you're going to do said project, yet your boss comes and tells you you still have to complete the project, but not the way you wanted to do it. Oh, you messed up my plan. That's it. Okay, so um, some of you have taken kids on vacation. Boy, is that a joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in your mind, you create a plan. Okay, so we know it's going to take X amount of time to get to Florida. So I'm going to pre-pack the car the night before. The car is going to be packed. We're going to wake up at 7. We're going to get everybody in the car by 8. That puts me on the beach in a chair with my toes in the ocean by 12 o'clock in Jesus' name. Okay, we can do this. That is my plan. But you wake up, and one kid's throwing up, and the other the other one can't find their flip-flop and you got to take the floaty and the thing and everybody's crying and it's terrible and your plan gets messed up. And so that's why Jesus is so controversial because everywhere he goes, he upends everything. He messes up the plan, the pre-constructed notion that people had in their minds. Now, what specifically do I mean? Well, Jot this down. Uh, this goes for those religious people, and it also goes for the little religious person that lives inside of us. The religious person's plan is earned favor that leads to tedious rule-keeping. The religious person's plan. Okay, so the little religious person that lives inside of us these uh, Pharisaic, uh, you know, religious people, their plan, okay, this was the plan. The plan was earned favor that leads to tedious rule keeping. It was all about earned favor. How can I be made right with God? How can I be acceptable to God? How can I bridge this gap between me and God? Because at the end of the day, if I'm honest with myself, I realize I'm a sinner. I realize I've messed up. I realize I've done wrong. I realize that I've thought terrible things. I've done terrible things. I've said terrible things. And then I've tried to cover up all those terrible things. So I realize that God is holy. He is totally separate. And there is a gap between me and him. So how do I earn his favor? How do I... How do I get uh, back to a right relationship with God? Well, it's simply earned favor. That means you have to do all the right things, say all the right things. You have to be a good little boy or a good little girl, and daddy will pat you on the head. That's, that's how this plan works. It's earned favor. I must earn my way back to God because I know I'm in the wrong. Now, what that leads to then is tedious rule keeping. 
I mean, you, you've got to, I mean, always be on guard. You can never let your guard down. You have got to follow the rules. And, and so the best thing to do then, if you're about that tedious rule keeping, is to make up rules about the rules. And so, uh, you know, you cannot, Christians cannot go to rated R movies, right? And uh, Christians, uh, 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 unless it's the passion of the Christ, you know. Uh, because that's rated our movie. Um, but Christians cannot listen to secular music because it's of the devil, right? So you can't go to rated our movies. Uh, you, you cannot uh, listen to secular music. You can't smoke, drink, or chew or run with girls that do. You can't, you have to create this whole system and way of living because you're working as hard as you can to earn God's favor. So it's earned favor, which leads to tedious rule keeping. This is the religious person's plan. This is the plan that, if we're honest, still lurks in our hearts. Um, the Christian college that, that I went to had an extensive list uh, of things that you, know, you were allowed to, you know, uh, on, on the, the Christian campus that I went to, there was no hand-holding, right? Because you know where that leads. Um, there, there was, uh, again, no rated R movies, uh, no hand-holding. You had to go to chapel every Thursday, and when you showed up at chapel uh, at, at this Christian uh, campus, you had to, you had to be clean-shaven, okay? So you had to shave, uh, and you had to wear a shirt that had a collar. So, so uh, again, this, this is um, where the religious heart goes. It, it wants to earn God's favor by tediously keeping rules. Here's, here's the problem with that. The problem is that, that mindset, we can, we can put all of that underneath the umbrella of legalism. Sometimes it's called legalism, earning God's favor by, by being good or doing the right thing. Again, we talked about this last week and I won't go into it too far, but, but this is every religious system essentially other than Christianity. So if you want to be a good Muslim, uh, you have to you know, follow the five pillars of Islam. If you, uh, if you want to be a good Jew, you have to obey Torah. So it's all about earned favor, doing the right things, right? Here's the problem. Here's, here's the main issue with that way of thinking with legalism. Legalism or earned favor that leads to tedious rule keeping always leads to pride or despair. That's always where it goes. Because if by some, you know, stretch, you're able to keep the rules, you go, huh, I kept all of the rules. You know, look at me. I mean, have you seen, I haven't seen a rated R movie in years, right? I mean, I've, I've got it all together. I, you know, it, it leads to a sense of pride that you're better than those other people who do all that terrible stuff. So then you find yourself in the very thing that you're trying not to do, which is sin, because you're prideful. The other side of tedious rule keeping, the other side of earned favor, at least a tedious rule keeping or legalism, if you don't err into pride, you err into total despair because you're just crushed under the weight of trying to keep all the rules. You're just, you're totally like, oh, I mean, I broke that one, I broke this rule, I broke this rule and this rule, and I, oh, I broke that rule twice today, um, you know, before breakfast, and, and you, you just feel crushed and under the weight of all of the rule keeping, and you find yourself in a place of total despair. So legalism leads to pride or despair. So that's the plan of all religions. <laughs> Jesus comes to offer a new plan. He, he comes uh, with great controversy because he says that plan doesn't work. 
I, I want to upend that plan. I want to take both of those things and flip them on their head. So Jesus' plan, if you're taking notes, Jesus' plan is free grace that leads to joyful obedience. Free grace that leads to joyful obedience. It's the exact opposite of the other one. He upended it. He flipped it on its head. He turned it around. He said, no, it's the exact opposite. That, that's why people were so angry at him is because what he came to offer was free grace. Now, it was not free to him. When we say free grace, don't think I'm talking about, usually if it's like, hey, if you come buy this thing, we're gonna throw in this extra thing for free. Well, usually the extra thing they throw in for free is really cheap, isn't it? You know, you get a free flashlight or a free whatever. This free thing was actually incredibly costly. It was so costly, not, not to us, but to him. It, it was so costly because of the life that he had to live in perfect obedience to God the Father for, for his whole life, obeying the law to the very end. He obeyed God. He loved God, served God with his whole life. And he took that life and he nailed it to a cross. He died in our place for our sins so that we could be offered that free grace. So while it is free to us, it was very costly to him. But listen, Listen, if, if he didn't do that, then there's no way that we could get that free grace. So he comes to offer free grace. He says, it's totally free. I've already paid for it. I have footed the bill. The receipt uh, is nailed on the cross, right? The signature at the bottom of the receipt says Jesus, and he signed it when he resurrected from the dead, Okay. So it's free. It's free grace. Uh, Jesus is saying there is a way to be reunited with God. There, there is a way to have a relationship with God, uh, and, and I've paved the way for you. It, it, it was through his death, burial, and his resurrection. It's totally free. So we can be accepted by God, loved by God. When God looks at us, he sees his sons that he loves. He sees his daughters that he loves. Uh, he, he, he sees, uh, you know, Princes and princesses. This, this is a loving father who loves us. And, and Jesus made that possible. Now, what that free grace then does is it leads us to joyful obedience because our sins are forgiven past, present, and future. So, so what we don't do is say, well, my sins are forgiven past, present, and future. Now let me step way over here into lawless living. I mean, I'm totally forgiven, right, for past, present, and future. Well, hey, let's, you know, let's get out there and, and do all of the things that, you know, are lurking, those little dark things that are lurking in our hearts. Let's just live it up to, you know, the sinful fullest, right? Let's get out there and have licentious living, lawless living. See, that, that's not what follows. Free grace, when we understand free grace, what follows is joyful obedience, because we are loved by the Father, we want to please Him. We want to obey Him. We want to follow His rules. We, we realize that He calls us to things. He commands us things in the New Testament. And, and, and so those commands are there. And because He has bought us with a price, uh, because He has set His love upon us, because He has cared for us, because He provides for us every single day, this very moment, God is providing life to you right now as you inhale oxygen, you're breathing, your heart is beating. God is supplying your very life right here, right now. It is when we understand 
understand the great grace of God, the love of God that he's poured out onto us, the natural response is for us to want to obey him. So that's Jesus' plan. (laughs) Now, what robs us of joyful obedience is believing that acceptance is based on our obedience. So this is uh, what, what essentially is happening inside the hearts of the Pharisees. They're believing we must obey, we must obey. If God is going to love me, accept me, pat me on the back, I must obey. And what happened is all of their joy was robbed from them. And this is the same thing that happens to us. If we think I've got to be a good Christian, I've got to do all the right things. I can't, you know, there's all these these rules that I have to follow. If I don't follow all those rules, then God won't love me. And and then we find ourselves in a place where all of our joy, all the joy that God wants us to have in our life is totally robbed away from us because we're worried, we're so focused on following all the rules. So I say again, what robs us of joyful obedience, that place where we know we're accepted, we know God loves us no matter what, and that drives us to obey the commands of the Bible. What robs us of joyful obedience is believing that acceptance is based on our obedience. You see, obeying Jesus equals joy. Now, again, I'm not talking about a temporary happiness that is based on circumstances, okay? Uh, um, A four-wheeler will make you happy. I mean, you ever rode those things? They're fun. They go fast, you know, go over jumps. They're great, right? A a, a bass boat can make you happy. Uh, Chainsaws make me happy. So there there are circumstances where those type of things can make you happy for the moment. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a deep, settled peace down in your heart and in your soul. I'm talking about a joy that overflows out from you. That's that's the type of joy that I'm talking about. Um, And that comes from obeying Jesus because, you guys still with me? Um, are, you, are you the only one helping me today? Oh, yeah. you know, you're going to help me today. I, I, need, I need somebody else to help me today. Where, where that joy overflows out of us and, and comes from us because obeying Jesus equals joy. Now, the reason that obeying Jesus equals joy is because Jesus has created a system for optimal human flourishing. So Jesus sets up a way in which humans can find their deepest joy and he lays out those set of commands in the Bible and he says, this is what is good for you. This is what is right for you. Obey these commands and you will find freedom and joy. You see, oftentimes we think that the commands in the Bible do just the opposite of that. They rob us of freedom and they rob us of joy, but that, that's, that's incorrect. So by, if I have to do what Jesus says, then I'm, I'm submitting myself to a life of drudgery. And Jesus says, no, that, that it's actually the opposite. By obeying Jesus and doing what he calls you to do, that's where you find your true joy. And so all the people who believe that, um, you know, my sexuality, I, I decide everything about my sexuality. I decide everything, what happens with my money. I decide what happens with my time. And if I do that, if I, if I make my own way and make my own rules about my sexuality, my money, and my time, there I'll find freedom and joy. And that's actually incorrect. What happens is you find bondage there. So... My hope today, here's, here is my hope today. My hope today is that you will fight for your joy. This is what I want us to leave here doing today. Say, you know what? 
I know God wants a deep sense of peace and enjoyment in my heart. I know God wants that for me. And today I'm going to enter into the fight. I wanna fight for my joy today. This is one of my biggest jobs as your pastor is to come alongside you and fight with you for your joy. That is one of my chief roles. That's what I want to do with you and for you as your pastor is come alongside you and fight with you for your joy. So I'm encouraging you today. I'm calling you today to fight for your joy, not by tedious rule keeping, but by believing on the gospel more fully and deeply. Because when you believe on the gospel more fully and deeply, when I am convinced that I'm already loved and accepted, then I want to obey. And when I obey Jesus, I get joy. See that? See how it fits together? Okay. Let's dive into our text because I just preached the whole sermon. So <laughs> sermon's over and done with. Let's, let's pull all of that out from the text, verse 23. On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. Now, the Sabbath was a very important day. It was a very high and holy day. Um, they had very specific rules and things that you could do, things that you could not do, um, you, you see, we kind of get a skewed picture of this because we, we kind of uh, have that American sensibility about us to where, you know, ain't nobody going to tell me what to do. You know, that, that type of American sensibility to where we don't listen to anyone. Nobody can tell us what to do. They had a, a bit of a different mindset. They had a deep connection to uh, God's word, a deep reverence and respect for God's word. It was their ultimate authority, not their own will. Um, they also had a deep respect for their religious leaders. And so uh, when their religious leaders said, hey guys, these are the rules and, and we're gonna make rules about the rules and we want you to follow them, these guys took that stuff very seriously, okay? So on the Sabbath, so the Sabbath started Friday evening um, and it lasted till sunset on Saturday. That, that was their holy day. Now, God had modeled them uh, God had modeled the Sabbath for them back in the Genesis account of creation. On the seventh day, God rested from all his work. Now, obviously, when God rested and, and made that a Sabbath day rest, God was not resting because he was tired. Okay? God, God was not wore out after speaking the entire creation into being. Okay? That, that would be strange if God was tired. He, he, it, it, it's not as if he needed a sandwich and a nap. What, what he was doing was modeling for us a pattern, a pattern for us to follow. Uh, because God knew in our, uh, in our state, uh, in, in who we are, we are not Superman, we are not Superwoman. And so he knew that we were going to need a time of rest, and so he modeled rest for us even though he himself did not need to rest. So they had given them this day, God had given them this day, and uh, put it right there in the Ten Commandments, right? Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Uh, and so we can look to Exodus chapter 20, uh, verses 8 through 11. Listen to this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. 
On it you shall not do any work, you or your sons or your daughters, your male servants or your female servants or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in the six days the Lord made the heaven and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Okay, pretty clear, pretty straightforward. God rested to be the model for us to rest and he commands us on that day not to work. Uh, No one else, right? Not your servant, not your female servant, you know, not your horse, your cat, your dog, right? Everybody's taking a nap. Like nobody is working. That, that is the plan for today. Obviously, this is a great blessing from God, loving us, serving us, caring for us because he knows our failings. He knows that we get tired and exhausted and need to rest. Um, and, and so he says, this is what you should do. So it was on that day where these guys were supposed to be resting on the Sabbath day. He was going through the grain fields And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. Okay, so here's where it starts to get off track because, like I said, these guys had made rules about the rules. Okay, so obviously we just read the very clear command from Exodus, which is do not work. But the religious Pharisees had created 39 categories of work that you could not do. They, they had uh, created a boundary really, really far back from the line as not to step over the line. So again, 39 categories of work, which included, uh, and this is not the full list because we'd be here forever, but it included things like you were not allowed, uh, there was no plowing, no winnowing, no hunting, no butchering, no tying of a knot, no loosening a knot. Uh, you could only sew one stitch. So, so if you tore a hole in your garment, you could only one stitch just to, right? Uh, no more, you could not write more than one letter. And that's not a full letter, that's one letter of the alphabet. You could only write one letter of the alphabet on, on the uh, Sabbath. Now, uh, you were not allowed to set a dislocated bone because it was not life-threatening. So you just have to sit there all day with a dislocated shoulder, I suppose. Uh, you were not allowed to mend a, fall, a fallen roof or, or throw something into the air, right? The, these guys had got really, really serious about making sure they didn't work on the Sabbath. So they created all these rules to make sure that they didn't break that law. They had worked so hard to cover all the bases. They even had a rule for if a roof fell down on people. So I'm sure you want to know what that is. Now, uh, if a roof were to fall down on people, you were allowed to remove enough rubble to see if the people were alive. Now, if the people were alive, you could then dig them out. If they were not alive, you would have to leave them until sunset on the Sabbath. Okay. Now, let's be clear. Boundaries are good as long as you don't think they make you more holy and you don't apply them to everyone. Here's what I mean. If, listen, if you, have, if you have a struggle with pornography, maybe you should make a rule for yourself. You should set a boundary for yourself which says, I'm not going to go on the internet when I'm by myself. I I don't trust myself to do that. I've fallen and messed up in the past. So when I'm by myself, I don't go on the internet. That's my rule, okay? That's a rule about the rule, isn't it? But but that's a good rule. Uh, If you struggle with alcohol, maybe you should never go into a bar. Uh, If if you, you know, so so there are... There are good rules. If, if you struggle with finances and, and you just can't help but buying stuff, maybe you should just never own a credit card, okay? 
and you set that boundary for yourself, okay? So boundaries are good. As long as you don't think they make you more holy. Oh, look at me. I never go on the internet. God must love me. God is smiling down upon me because I have thrown away my laptop. Have you rejected your laptop, sir? I have, right? And, and so there, you can create that sense of holiness that, oh, I never go into any establishment which sells alcohol. So I have thrown away my laptop. I never go into establishments which sell alcohol and I have cut up all of my credit cards. Wow, God thinks I'm awesome. So it's when you think that following those rules makes you more holy, more acceptable in the sight of God, and it's when you apply those rules to other people, which is where you get yourself in trouble. So because the Pharisees had made rules about the rules, because the Pharisees had made all of these rules down to the final detail of daily life, they robbed themselves out of the joy that God had intended for them. On the Sabbath day, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees, verse 24, were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Here's the scene. Uh, as we know, Jesus is traveling around teaching. He's going from town to town, place to place, uh, getting in places where large crowds can gather, and he's teaching. Well, they're on their way uh, to some place to teach, apparently, it's on the Sabbath, and they are going through a field, and these guys reach out, and they grab some heads of grain. And what you would have to do is kind of rub them together in your hands to crack them open so that the husk could shed off, and you would have left the fruit that was on the inside. And so these guys are essentially going for a full-on organic snack, right? They are traveling through, boom, grab some grain, we're on the way, Jesus is going to teach, we've got some stuff to do, here we go, boom, grab the grain, crack it open, little snack. The Pharisees see that and they go, oh my word, these guys are harvesting, they're harvesting, harvesting on the Sabbath, harvesting is work, can you believe this? I mean, how can, why doesn't Jesus rebuke them for working on the Sabbath? They just harvested. You saw them harvest. I saw them harvest. Everybody saw it. Rub them together. Boom. They harvested grain. Can you believe this? You know? So this, in the mind of the Pharisees, they were harvesting, and harvesting was bad. Sin, working on the Sabbath. Now, here is the $64,000 question. Where does it say that it is unlawful to do what these guys were doing? Answer, nowhere. As a matter of fact, Deuteronomy 23, 25, listen to this. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may, there it is, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Okay, so what that's saying is, if you're on the way somewhere, your neighbor's got a field, you're having to pass through, it's cool if you get a snack. That's totally cool. What's not cool is if you crank up the chainsaw or, you know, the, the combine and chop the whole thing down, right? So, so uh, we, I take uh, my daughter, my, my family and I, we go, uh, we go apple picking in October in the, in the fall time. So it's cool if we go through there with our little bag basket thing and, you know, pick the apples and put them in there. It's not cool if we chop down all the trees and drag them home with us, okay? That's not cool. They, they would frown on that if we did that. So there is a big difference between getting a snack and harvesting. These guys 
Snacking, not harvesting. But because the Pharisees made rules about the rules, they interpreted their actions as harvesting. So what they meant to say, they said, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? What they meant to say is, why are they doing what is not lawful according to us on the Sabbath? Let's see how Jesus responds in fantastic fashion as he always does. And he said to them, have you never read what David did? Okay, so at, like right there, you have to see that that's a bit of a jab, okay? These guys like majored on, we've read the Bible. We know this, I mean, we've got all the scrolls memorized. We've got, you know, we, they're the Bible guys. And Jesus says, hey, have you guys ever read this? The answer is yes, they have. And so that's why it's kind of a jab. And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry and those who were with him and how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat and also gave it to those who were with him. Now, uh, here is a little bit of background. Jesus brings up this account from 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. You can go read it, okay? David and his men are essentially, King David, um, are on the run from uh, King Saul, right? They're on the run, and by virtue of being on the run in the desert, uh, way back then, there are no fast food restaurants around, uh, therefore, they are hungry. They, they haven't had anything to eat. They're, they're running for their lives, Okay? Uh, so they're hungry. Well, David knows that in the, in the tabernacle, uh, there is what is called the showbread or the, the bread of the presence. Now, what that is, is um, every Sabbath day, they would bake 12 loaves of bread. Okay? They, they would actually have them prepared beforehand. They would take these fresh, uh, this fresh bread and they would put it on a table in the tabernacle. And, and God had uh, very clear and specific rules on how you were supposed to do that. You had to have six loaves on this side and six loaves on this side. Um, and it, it, you had to do it in a, a very ceremonial type of way, walk in, and it was an offering to God. It was a bread offering, a, a, a to God given um, on the Sabbath. Boom, there it is. And then after the ceremony was over, the priests would eat that bread. That's a way of God taking what was given to him uh, and then nourishing his servants. Okay, so the bread given to God, boom, there it is. At the end of the ceremony, priests, they come in, they sit down, eat the bread. That's how the ceremony was supposed to go. But on this particular day, what happens is in the story, David comes in, uh, they, they're like on the verge of exhaustion about to die, uh, and the priests take that bread and give it to David and his men, and they eat it, and God never condemns it. Hmm. Well, here's the thing. The story shows us that sometimes there is an exception to the rule. Listen very carefully. God wanted them to perform the sacred ceremony every Sabbath. He, he told them to do it. He wanted the priest to eat the bread, but not if it meant that his servant David and his men would starve to death. Okay, so God's like, hey, I want you to do this ceremony. I want you guys to eat the bread. What if David and his men starve to death? Well, well then just give them the bread so they don't starve. But, but that doesn't mean I don't want you to do the ceremony, okay? So, so what's happening here is legitimate human need outweighed the ceremonial regulation, okay? So, uh, uh, here's an example for us, okay? So Jewish history aside, uh, 
if, if you came in and said, hey, uh, Pastor Kirk, today, instead of going out to lunch, we're going to stay here uh, and we're going to eat all the communion bread uh, and we're going to drink up the juice. I would say, no, you cannot do that. That is for communion. That, that's a very sacred ceremony. Uh, Jesus says, do this in remember, remembrance of me. This is something we're supposed to do. So no, you can't eat up our communion bread and drink up all our juice. It's not going down like that. But if you said, uh, hey, Pastor Kirk, I'm starving to death, right? I'm, I'm giving you the bread, okay? So that's what's happening here. That is what's happening. Now, there is a picture behind the picture. So, so Jesus brings this up to, to say, hey, these guys, one, they're not harvesting. Uh, two, legitimate human need outweighs ceremony. But three, in this picture that Jesus is painting, David's men are a picture of the disciples. That means Jesus is a picture of David, the, the great hero king the great messianic prototype who comes to set up Israel's great kingdom. And so Jesus is comparing himself to David, the messianic prototype, showing that he is not the, he, uh, he is not the prototype, but he actually is the Messiah. He is the great king who has come to set up the great kingdoms. You see, David was uh, the great hero of, of, I mean, everybody, all the Pharisees, all the, I mean, everybody. If you are an Israelite, I mean, he, this is like Captain America to us. I mean, th this is David. And, and Jesus is saying, yeah, that's, that's me. David was seen as the great hero. Um, and so here, what we find is, jot this down, Jesus is king. And by virtue of being king, he is to be obeyed. That's what kings do. They're obeyed. That's why they're the king. They're the king because you obey them, right? So Jesus is king. He is, he is showing that he is king by comparing himself to David. Jesus is king, and by virtue of being king, he is, he is to be obeyed. And when we obey him, we find joy. Listen to this, friends. Sadly, the great myth is that you find joy only when you obey yourself. It's the great myth. That's the great myth. We're so tempted to believe it. I'm so tempted to believe it. The world believes it. If I only obey myself, I will find joy. That is the great myth. It's a myth, friends. True joy is only to be found by obeying the king, King Jesus. So after he tells them this little story, he makes some very interesting statements. Verse 27, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This, again, uh, is very controversial because uh, he is turning their view upside down. You see, the Sabbath to them, the Sabbath was such a, a holy day, such an important day. I mean, Sabbath was the thing, and men were on earth to honor the Sabbath. And Jesus says, no, you got it backwards. <laughs> flip, flip it over. You do it like that. There you go. Flip it over. Be because um, you see, man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath, that day was created for man. Again, for us to rest because God knows that we're not Superman and Superwoman and sometimes we need to slow down and rest. 
And so the Sabbath day is a blessing for you. You're not a blessing for the Sabbath. That's what Jesus is explaining to them. God gave us this command for our joy. This is for your joy. The Sabbath commandment is for your joy. Jesus isn't saying that the Sabbath isn't important or that we shouldn't observe a, a, a Sabbath day rest. He's not saying that at all. As a matter of fact, he is saying that, that we should observe it. But it is for our joy. It's for our benefit. He knows that you can't do everything all the time, right? So practically speaking, those of us who tend to work too much, those of us who tend to work too hard, those of us who tend never to slow down, listen, God is saying, rest. Take a day off. Lay on the couch. Watch a movie. Do nothing. Because by slowing down and resting is the ultimate act of showing in your life, it's a very practical way of showing in your life that God is in control. That's what that does. It, it shows, it's a very practical way of you showing that God is in control. So there's a lot of excuses that you can come up with not to rest. If you run out of excuses, come and ask me. I've got plenty for you. There's a lot of excuses why we come up with not to rest, not to take a day off. But again, taking the day off is the ultimate declaration that you trust in God, that I don't need to work. I don't have to have it all covered. I don't have to have it all taken care of. So who does Jesus think he is making this type of statement? A statement like the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Who does he think he is? Well, he says it pretty clear in verse 28. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That, that is loaded. That is packed down. Um, I, we could, I could do like a six-week series just on verse 28 here. Um, I, I don't have time to uh, take it all apart, uh, but, but let's just roll through it uh, as quickly as we can. So the Son of Man, where does that come from, church? Daniel chapter 7, where uh, the Son of Man is described as one who is seated um, in front of the Ancient of Days. Uh, he is described as one who is given all authority, all power, all dominion, that everyone should serve him. Jesus is saying that Son of Man whom everybody should serve and who is seated uh, in the presence of the Ancient of Days, I'm that Son of Man. That's me. This is actually Jesus' favorite designation for himself. More than he calls himself any other name, his favorite name for himself is the Son of Man. And, and, and a lot of people read that and they think, oh, here, Jesus is saying that he's simply human. That is incorrect. Jesus is ascribing to himself two things, one, humanity and deity, uh, saying that he is very God of God. That's what, that's what Jesus is saying here. And by virtue of being the Son of Man, by virtue of being divine, he can say this, that he is Lord, that is Kyrios, uh, that, that is ruler, king. That's what this, this Lord means. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So, so you're making up rules about the rules, but listen, this is what he's saying to the Pharisees. Listen, boys, I'm the ultimate rule maker. I make the rules. You, you can't, I, I already set them up, already put them in place. They're there, they're good. You don't have to mess with them. Um, and so I already set up all the rules and I have the authority to set up all the rules because I'm God, right? He, he pulled the, the, the card out of his pocket and laid it on the table. There it is, boom, the God card. I got it. He has it in his pocket. He laid it on the table. There it is. Okay, next scene. 
we got to move. Now, he lays this out on the table. Friends, not only has Jesus ascribed royalty to himself by saying that he was uh, David, but he also ascribed deity to himself by calling himself the son of man. Now, the first scene that we just saw, okay, this scene that we just saw is a declaration of his lordship over the Sabbath. Okay, he, he just said, the son of man is lord over the Sabbath. He, he made that declaration. Now, in the next scene, he is going to put on a demonstration of his lordship over the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Okay, again, what's the rule that we saw in Exodus? The rule in Exodus is don't work. That's the rule. But they had said that um, if an illness was not life-threatening, you were not allowed to heal on the Sabbath because that would be work. Okay, so, so now they're watching him. They're, they're, they're looking um, for this guy. So the problem here is that his hand is only withered. It's just a withered hand. It's, it's a, you know, it's, this is not life-threatening what, what this guy has. And they're, and they're seeking to accuse him. I mean, you have to see the level that these, these guys are willing to stoop. They're, they're taking someone who has a disability and trying to use him as a pawn in their game. You must note the irony here. They are mad at Jesus for doing good on the Sabbath, yet they're about to plan to do murder. They're seeking, I mean, this is so ironic. They're seeking to accuse him um, so that they can plan his murder because he's about to do something good. Crazy, crazy. Listen to what Jesus has to say. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. Boom, guy stands up in the middle of synagogue, comes forward. Jesus is standing there with him. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? to save life or kill, but they were silent. That's what you call checkmate. They had no way to answer him. That's why they were silent. Okay, so, so you're, you're, saying, you're, you're saying I'm not supposed to do good on the Sabbath, on the Lord's day? Like that's a no-no, that's off limits. So the first question is pretty clear what he's talking about. The good thing that he's talking about doing, okay, can I do good or can I do evil? Um, the good thing that he's talking about doing is healing the guy's hand, obviously. The next question is a little bit more confusing. He said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or harm to save life or kills? By, by healing the guy's hand isn't necessarily gonna save his life. So what does that question refer to? You see, Jesus understood that his fate was linked to the man with the withered hand. He could play by the religious people's rules, i.e. not healing on the Sabbath, and they would not kill him. Or he could do what is good, heal the man, and they would plot to kill him. So the question is to them, is it lawful to kill? Again, they they could not answer. 
Essentially, he's calling them what they are. He is calling what all religious people are. He is calling what, what we often find ourselves being, which is hypocrites. They are so mad at him for being unholy and sinful by helping someone, yet they go plan an assassination. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and it was restored. You see, what, what legalism does, what this idea of earned favor that leads to tedious rule-keeping is it creates a callous heart. It, it creates a heart that doesn't care for people. That's why Jesus is so irritated. That's why he's so angry here because their religious rule-keeping gave them a sense that they were better than other people. And so this guy who had a withered hand, who had a disability, they should have been pumped up, excited at the potential fact that Jesus might heal him because that would have been great for him, great for his family, great for the whole rest of his life. This is great news. Instead, their religiosity and religiousness had created a callous heart with inside of themselves. And so they were not loving towards this man. And that's what made Jesus so angry. And Jesus heals this guy. Verse six, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Now, uh, for sake of time, Herodians were the people who supported Herod, um, which again, this is a really unlikely pairing, the Pharisees and the um, Herodians for these guys to get together. That just shows you again how controversial Jesus really was, that these two groups um, who would never work together decided to work together to plot for Jesus' death. Okay, th this is, this is uh, Trump supporter and Hillary supporter right, working together for a common goal, right? So this is what happens. Now, what these men intended for evil, God intended for good. You see, his son's death would fix the broken relationship that had occurred because of sin, bring God's children back to him, restoring uh, us back to him relationally so that God could get glory and we could get joy. So because of the death that these guys are plotting, now we get the gift of free grace, which leads to joyful obedience. Again, friends, listen to this. Jesus' plan is free grace that leads to joyful obedience. That's, that's Jesus' plan. That's, that's the good news. Listen to this from Romans chapter six, verses one through four. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Okay, Paul is asking this question because they're understanding the idea of free grace, that your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. And some people are going, well, if my sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, don't I just go out and live licentiously? Don't I just chase after sin? I mean, isn't that what, and he's saying, asking the question, what shall we say then? Are we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. The answer is no. No, that, that's, that's not when you understand God's love and acceptance for you. It doesn't drive you to licentiousness. It doesn't drive you to lawlessness. Um, what it does is it drives you to joyful obedience. He asked this question, how can we who died to sin still live in it? 
That, that's a rhetorical question. The, the, the answer is you can't. If you have died to sin, you don't still live in it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? This is the gift of this is how we get the gift of free grace, which leads to joyful obedience. We're baptized into his death. That, that was his death that earned us that free grace. We were buried, therefore, with him. It, it, again, it's his death. It's his burial that gets us that gift of free grace. By baptism into his death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That new life is the life of joyful obedience that Jesus offers us. Not a life of tedious rule keeping, but of joyful obedience. So again, I'll say this, Jesus' plan is free grace that leads to joyful obedience. Friends, you are accepted and loved by the king, so follow him. So follow him. Engage in the fight for your joy by obeying Jesus, by obeying his commands, not seeking to do more and certainly not seeking to do less. But fight for your joy today. Fight for your joy today by obeying Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for preserving this word for us in your holy writ. We thank you that you teach us through your word, through your holy word, that you shape our lives and our hearts Father, I pray today that we would see that you have a life of joy for us, and that life of joy comes through obeying you, by being obedient to you. Father, I pray that we would reject today a spirit of tedious rule-keeping, that we would reject the idea that we can earn your favor, earn your love, earn your grace, earn your acceptance. That is impossible. And so, Father, I pray today that any thought of that uh, that remains in our hearts or, or any time it creeps up again and again and again, we would reject it by your name and, and by preaching the gospel to ourselves and say, I am loved by God, accepted by God because of the work of Christ. Let that be our heart's cry, Lord. Send your spirit here now to set people free from tedious rule keeping. Send your spirit to fuel us on a journey of joyful obedience to you. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.